Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveler. Hi, it's Kim and Phil, and we're shining the spotlight in this episode of the podcast on Rwanda. As we recall, in 1994, Rwanda was riven by genocide. A million people were killed, mostly by their neighbours, where there was one tribe against another. But fast forward to 2019, and the country has emerged as an unlikely travel destination. It's got mountains covered in lush green forests, sitting alongside modern cities and Rwanda is one of the countries leading the world on green growth with a mission to maintain a clean and healthy environment. That includes a ban on walking on grass, a ban on plastic bags and a mandatory day of community service known as Umuganda. On the last Saturday of every month all Rwandans aged between 18 and 65 and visitors too, they're all required to go outside and clean up a designated area. I'd do it. I'd do it, absolutely. I, I, you know, take home three pieces of trash every time I go to the beach. Good man. There you go. Uh, Look, and there are many other programs in place to help make Rwanda a low-carbon economy by 2050. In this episode, we'll hear about a girl's trip to the Akagera National Park. Have I pronounced that correctly? I think so. (laughs) Learn about a special program in Rwanda inspiring female tourism entrepreneurs. And we meet a Norwegian man, Phil, who's visited every country in the world twice – I know you said he couldn't mm-hmm. have, including... Well, that's not what I said, <laughs> <No>. but <laughs> I indicated I didn't believe it. <laughs> including 20 of the least visited. Our first guest, though, is Sarah Hebola, a New York Times award-winning author, journalist and travel writer, and she was really keen to be part of this episode after she was sent to Rwanda on assignment for Bloomberg and she fell in love with it. I just don't think I expected to be so affected by a place. You know, I... Didn't know much about Rwanda when I got the assignment. And it was, you know, it was sort of a random lottery. Like, can you go to Rwanda? Sure, why not? And, you know, I did the thing where you scramble and do the research. But all I really knew about Rwanda was probably the most ghastly part of its history, which is, you know, the part that a lot of us know, which is images of dead bodies lying in the street because a million people had died in a genocide in 1994. So, you know, I knew it had changed. I didn't quite know how much. I think... The thing about Rwanda is when you compare those ghastly images that you remember from the news and then walk into the reality of it, which is this warm place pulsating with life and love and this like sense of people that have gotten a second chance. I think that is what is so profound about that country. It's been 25 years since that genocide and they have really turned their country around and people are coming to see them now and visiting them. And there's this feeling of like, we matter, you like us. And and there's just this really incredibly warm vibe there. It was just really profound. And it makes the what happened in the genocide even more significant. It's like, you know, something as horrible as that happening to such a nice place. Yeah, I think that it made me think a lot about how I had sort of seen that as something that could never happen anywhere that I lived, you know, that people would never turn on their neighbours like that. But the more I read those stories, the more I really felt like that could happen to a lot of, I mean, you know, look, I we weren't around for the Civil War, but it, it wasn't a great time in American history. 
the, the way that people can turn on themselves or the darkness that is in the human heart that also dwells alongside the spirit. I think that's the thing that kind of hits you constantly over the head there. It's very interesting the way that that country is trying to navigate. You know, we're not going to forget what happened, but at the same time, we don't want to dwell in it because they, they want the country to be a vibrant place. It is flourishing. So how's it turned itself around within within 25 years? And to the point where they've got, as an example, universal health care, gender equality. Yeah. I think they looked at other countries that were struggling around them and tried to learn the economic lessons. One of the ones they learned was to, to forge really strong partnerships with certain companies and to create what they call a low Num, like it's it's called like a low volume, high end tourism experience. So basically, instead of saying everybody come to Rwanda and then having a bunch of footprints trampling across a relatively small country, they said we're gonna partner with these really high end businesses to make travel experiences that are exceptional and rare and also very expensive. So it can be expensive to go to some of these places. Like for instance, I did. What I think is, you know, the, the most amazing I guess, natural resource that they have in Rwanda is that they have part of a mountain chain that is home to part of the world's endangered mountain gorillas. There's 880 in, in total, and they're shared across three countries, one of the Congo and Uganda as well, and, and Rwanda has about half of those. And so there are trips that you can take, and they're very well managed and very well controlled to make sure that you are not affecting the endangered mountain gorillas whatsoever. But you can walk up you know, into the rainforest jungle and spend an hour with these these creatures that, you know, if you've seen a movie like Gorillas in the Mist, which is the story of Diane Fossey coming to Rwanda in the 70s, how remote it was, how unusual it was for any human to spend time with these very mysterious creatures, the amount of sacrifice, and she basically went crazy trying to study these, these gorillas, um, the fact that that experience is available to your common traveler, yes, for a pretty penny, but it's, it's really quite exceptional. And I think Rwanda has done a very smart job of leveraging that asset, as opposed to what can so often happen with an asset that a lot of people want, which is that you end up having this thing and you destroy it by too many people coming in. Yeah, I think we're getting to the point in um, you know travel generally where it's a privilege to travel. Everybody should have that privilege to travel. But um, you know, mass tourism is creating so many problems. You kind of should also be expecting to pay for that privilege. Yeah. I mean, I think I, so much of my like education or awakening was around leaving my own small state and then leaving my country, which is America and getting out into the world. But as I've done that more, and as I've seen the damage and the land fill, you know, left by water bottles and all these kind of things, I've realized, you know, that we, we don't just get away from our home. We enter someone else's home. And I think it's, it's our duty to think about what it is, um, how we can do that with a moral conscience. And one of the ways for sure is that travel maybe shouldn't be cheap. It's kind of like, it's one of those tough lessons, like, like maybe food shouldn't be cheap. Maybe gas shouldn't be cheap. Maybe cheap sounds great, but doesn't recommend itself for the health of the planet and the people that inhabit it. 
Is it, though, a case of they're using the gorillas to attract uh, travellers? And as you say in your article, hopefully once you're there, you'll stay for the rest? Yeah, I think that's what they're trying to do because people see gorillas on, you know, this is it's silly, but honestly, it's where a lot of people get their travel ideas. You see gorillas on Instagram and it's like, wait, how do I get to do that? I just want to go to the gorillas. People know about the gorillas. They're world famous for the gorillas. They don't have any interest in going to Rwanda, but Rwanda has done a good job. Now that they've brought in some of that tourism, they're giving incentives to people to stay longer, to go to some of the other national parks. There are like five national parks in Rwanda and they've they've like got the big five in one of them for your safaris and they have um, chimpanzees in another one. I mean, there's a lot to see in that country and it's not a terribly big country. It's also, I should say, a very like, I always think of, of Africa as like the Sahara or the Savannah, you know, like flat and dry. And um, Rwanda is very green and lush and beautiful. It's called the land of a thousand hills because it's so green. And it's full of farmers. So, you know, you're driving past all this kind of cropland um, and it's, it's sort of a beautiful spectacle. Um, but yeah, like they're, they're trying to, to, to get other people to explore, not just the gorillas, because there is a lot more in that country to see. In fact, I would love to go back. You know, there was so much in five days that I didn't get to see. I don't know if you're hearing my cat. <laughs> yeah, I wondered if it was a gorilla. <laughs> my cat wants to go back to Rwanda too. <laughs> so you've turned into a cat lady. <laughs> I sure have. You know what? I'm a proud cat lady, but I wouldn't mind adding a fella, a cat fella to the mix. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, we'll also uh, share on show notes your Tinder profile for you. Yeah. And, uh... <laughs> Thank you, guys. And good luck to Sarah on Finding Love. Links to her story and more about Sarah, probably a tab there to contact in show notes. Her <laughs> <laughs> Tinder profile. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Alicia Erickson is a writer and digital nomad based between Seattle and Eastern Southern Africa and India. Alicia recently gathered a group of girlfriends together and set off on a girls' trip to Rwanda's Akagera National Park, describing it as a unique safari destination. Yeah, it definitely is. It's not a place that people think to go on safari. They think Serengeti, Masai Mara, Kruger. Um, but Akagera, most people haven't exactly heard of or don't really think to go to. Um, It's really impressive the work they've done to rehabilitate the wildlife population. Um, After the Civil War, there was a lot of um, displaced people who started moving into the area around the park. And unfortunately, a lot of the um, original wildlife that had once been in abundance um, got completely wiped out. Um, But in the last 15, 20 years or so, they've brought in a lot of the original um, animals from other national parks around um, Sub-Saharan Africa and have done incredible work to repopulate. So what was your expectation versus the reality of it? I had lived in Rwanda for almost a year before uh, I went. I go to national parks quite often and I guess I was sort of as bad as everyone else thinking, oh, you know, I've been to um, some amazing wildlife parks and I think of Rwanda as a destination for volcanoes and lakes and primates. I was kind of thinking, oh, you know, it'll be like another national park with safaris. So I was just kind of imagining a savanna with no animals, which, you know, wasn't 
super interesting to me. And then it was absolutely wonderful. I loved the fact that we could self-camp. That's not something that's always easy to do in a lot of the national parks um, that you do safaris in around the continents. Um, but it was, it's such an easy few hour drive from the capital. And um, like the rest of the country, it is absolutely lush and green and mountainous. And the animals were in abundance. And maybe it was a special weekend and they came out just for us. But yeah, it really completely shattered my expectations of what I had been imagining. See, I mean, mountainous. I'm looking at the photos here. That's what's really striking about it. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, at one point, um, we were allowed to get out of the car. Our driver, who was really fantastic, um, and our guide for the day, he said, why don't you get out here? It's you know, a wonderful spot to walk around and take some photos. And I was saying, well you never get out of a car in a safari. What do you mean? He's like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. And it was in the part that was mountainous. Um, there aren't predators that live in that part of the park and just getting to walk sort of along the mountainous edge and look down into the valleys and seeing some of the antelope and the zebras down below was just, it was stunning. And it's, when you think of mountains, you think of the gorillas, you think of chimpanzees, or but you don't think of all of the typical animals that you might see on a safari roaming in those same um, terrain. Now, in a piece that you've written for his own World Nomads, you were talking, and you've just mentioned him then, the guide that you had in, he had this uncanny ability to spot animals. Tell us about that. Oh, it's really amazing. I mean, you know, he's driving the car and he's talking about the history of the park and his training as a guide and we're the ones looking for the animals thinking, well, you know, he's like, well, let me know if you see something else off the car. I'm like, okay, you know, this is our one job. Every time, you know, he slows the car. Hey, hey, look over there. He has his binoculars like that he's using as he's driving. You know, I've had it with Emmanuel. I've had it with other guides and they are just so talented at being able to spot an animal from a mile away. Um, it's like they sense where they are. I think it's really quite incredible. This camping trip, was it full of disasters? Could you cut wood? Did you know how to cook or did the three of you just laugh your way through it? A little bit. Um, I do camp. I'm from uh, the Northwest in the US and camping is something I commonly do, but firewood comes pre-cut there. And when we were reading up on the campsite, we are told there's firewood there, there's fire pit there. It's like, great. We brought the food. We have the pots and pans. It's no problem. We have everything we need, water. So we get there and um, Rwanda's rainy season, it's a bit tentative. The rains start to come and go starting um, in October, November. And they're really unpredictable. It will be sunny one minute and then downpour the next minute. And with our luck, it was absolutely pouring on our drive there. Um, which we were grateful had let up by the time we reached the campsite, but hadn't really thought that, oh, the camp, the uh, firewood that would be there would no longer be um, in its prime condition for making the fire. And as we get to the campsite, we look around, where's the camp, the, the firewood? And then there are these huge, huge trees full full logs of trees uncut with an axe <laughs> sitting next to it that's that's the firewood <laughs> the beauty um, of firewood like that is it warms you up twice once when you're chopping it and once when you're burning yeah, absolutely yeah here we are three girls i thought i was often camping 
an axe that we can hardly lift <laughs> and, and entire trees that we are supposed to chop firewood. Um, it takes a long time to hack away pieces. Uh, we also realize at this point that we have a lighter, but we forgot any sort of fire starters with us. And I honestly don't know how we ended up chopping the firewood into viable pieces, gathered some bark and twigs and anything we can find, a piece of paper in the car that after about an hour, we finally coaxed the fire to start. Um, <laughs> and of course, melted the plastic handle on the, the pot as we are cooking our dinner. Um, <laughs> but roasted some vegetables, um, poured some wine and we're very grateful that we had our uh, you had the magic ingredient a bottle of wine <laughs> yes yeah of, of course of course we had the wine if i looked at the logs the wine would have come out straight away yeah. probably probably so. well it sounds like the ultimate girls trip to be honest yeah it was absolutely fantastic and you can't do anything without wine, or at least I can't, and nor can Alicia. <laughs> Apparently, wherever she goes, she has a glass of wine in her hand. Her story in show notes, but what's travel news? Oh, look, I guess we have to talk about the grounding of the Boeing 737 MAX 8 and 9 aircraft following that horrible second fatal aircraft accident. The, the cause of those is yet to be determined. So as when we go to air now, we still don't know. You may be reading, uh, listening to this later on when you've we found out what it is. But the two 737 crashes this year means there have been five fatal aircraft crashes this year, claiming 190 lives. That's compared to the five-year average for over the same period of three crashes and 105 deaths. So it's a bit above the five-year average. But it's worth keeping this in perspective. In 2018, there were 38 million individual flights of commercial airliners and 15 fatal accidents in total. So that makes an accident rate of one fatal accident per 2.5 million flights. So it's very unlikely, but still... It has happened and that's very sad. Yep, and you remain many, many, many more times likely to be killed driving to the airport to get on a plane than you are actually on a plane. All right, so just keep that in perspective. Sad, tragic, uh, and I think grounding the aircraft is a very sensible idea. When or if Brexit happens and the UK leaves the European Union, British travellers, used to just hopping over to Europe, might be in for a bit of a shock. Uh, Look, your world nomads insurance policy is unaffected. It will be a seamless transition. You can read about that if you want on, on our website. But be careful not to fall foul of other laws that will suddenly apply to Brits travelling to Europe and Europeans visiting Britain. I'm talking about things like visas and passports and certain, you know, vehicle insurances. I anticipate there will be a few people who are tripped up by the changes. Don't be one of them. Make sure you understand your new obligations. We've got an article on the World Nomads website explaining a few of those rule changes that you need to be aware of. I will put a link in show notes. I came across this uh, rather fun piece recently, How Travel Has Changed, 21 Things That No Longer Exist. And we're going to show, (laughs) we're going to be showing our age here. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, people would have heard of these. Travellers checks don't exist anymore. No. Okay, go on. Paper airline tickets. Oh, I used to love a paper airline ticket. All that sort of carbon paper where it would, Yeah, yeah. it really meant you're going on a trip. That's right. 
Film cameras and film, film in general. Some, oh. I mean, it's making a bit of a comeback, but, you know, everybody uses Still digital. digital these days. Calculators, torches and CDs. <laughs> having to carry a sort of big sort of pouch of CDs around for you. You just music. need your phone now. That's got just a calculator, got a torch and it's got your music. Uh, post-restant. Do you remember what post-restant is? No. Somebody could write to you from home and you, you know, you'd send them a letter and say, I'm going to be in Rome in three weeks. So you can address a letter to Philip Sylvester, post-restant Rome, and it would be held at the main Rome post office and I would turn up there whenever I got there and go to the little post-restant office and tell them my name and show them some ID and they'd hand me the letter. That's very cool. Very cool, isn't it? Yeah, that is, that's kind of... That's new age almost. <laughs> Have you heard of email? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look. <laughs> WhatsApp, you know. <laughs> oh, the good All right, there you go. That's Thank it. you. That was great. Fair Voyage is working toward becoming the number one ethical travel booking platform in the world. You went missing, so I grabbed Alison, who writes our travel safety stories. I was ill. <laughs> to find out how they plan to go about that when we chatted with Alexandra from Fair Voyage. Fair Voyage is trying to solve two problems. The first one is that I had experienced when I went to Africa for the first time a few years ago, um, and I wanted to go back then. It was climbing Kilimanjaro and going on a safari, and I was also thinking of going to the beach in Zanzibar. And I just realized that as, as a traveler, that booking something like that, such a multi-day complex trip, was really complicated. And it took me many months of researching to find my best offers and to compare all these different companies. And so I just realized as a traveler that doing one of those complex trips is difficult. And then the second thing that happened is that I became aware of the of ethical and sustainability issues in travel. Um, and uh, specifically for me, the what, what triggered me was um, learning about the exploitation of porters on Mount Kilimanjaro. And so the second problem we are trying to solve is these irresponsible practices in travel that are still happening. Um, and often they are still happening because travelers are not even aware. And so travelers book with the wrong companies. Um, and so what we are trying to solve at Fair Voyage is making it easy for travelers to go on a complex trip but only with the most responsible and sustainable and ethical companies. Ali, what do you make of Fair Voyage? I'm, I'm guessing that you would love the idea. I'm actually also a former travel agent, so this is also something that I think would be very beneficial to the travel agency world as well. Um, but just as a traveller and in general, I think it's really important that people look at what they're planning to do and what they buy and particularly where they're going um, there's a lot of exploitation out there. Some of it's um, overt and people still think it's okay to, you know, participate in it, whether it's drugged up tiger photos or whatever. And then there's the covert stuff and it's often the covert stuff that a lot of travellers don't realise. Often that's doing a lot of damage in the background and it's having a ripple effect as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I fully agree with that and that's exactly the problem we are trying to solve. Um, a challenge here that we are seeing is... Um, that we travelers often have the tendency, I mean, we, we all smart and educated people and then we go travel somewhere and we spend maybe a week or even a month somewhere and we think we know it all and have seen it all. 
And as Ali just said, we only see the obvious things and we only see what we are meant to see. But we don't see these hidden practices. We don't see um, how, how people working in travel are really being treated. We don't see how the local communities uh, really live and how they, how they feel about us coming in and being there. So, yeah, there's a lot of hidden things that we don't get to see. And I guess, too, a misconception is that you don't necessarily need to volunteer somewhere to be a traveller with a conscience. Yeah, you don't need to volunteer. And I would even go further to say that volunteering can actually be very harmful. Um, the challenge, I guess, is that we are we all living busy lives and then often we feel like, okay, now I go on vacation and I want to do something meaningful. I want to use my vacation to really contribute. But often the way we want to contribute is not necessary. It may make us feel very good, but it is not necessarily having a positive and sometimes even a very negative impact on the local population like all these volunteering i guess with orphanages there's a big um, awareness now that this is not okay this is modern slavery but then there's often a gray zone like going to teach in a school or building a school um it's not like they have a shortage of manual labor anywhere in these countries right and it's more for us to feel good uh, but not necessarily having a positive impact locally. Obviously there's the simple things that people can look out for like you know um, for instance animal experiences not you know having photos done with or selfies done with animals um, but what other things can people do that are easy to also try and combat the covert problems? Yeah it's a good question actually sticking with photos you mentioned the photos with animals um, I would um, also like to address the point of taking photos of people. We often we are specialized in Africa, and so what we often observe, and I wouldn't say that I've been any better as a traveler myself, because the tendency to do so is very easy that we go somewhere, and then we want to take people with locals. So we go and take photos, and often we don't even ask people whether that's okay. I guess a good approach would be to treat uh, the local communities in the same way we would want to be treated if they come visit us in our home. So would we be happy for them to come and take photos of our children? Most likely we wouldn't. So it's treating them with the same respect. Um, and so for taking photos is one example. Or another example is that visiting local villages or local communities has also become a very popular trend of getting the intimate experience and the authentic experience. But we should also think, how do, how do people there feel when all of a sudden, so they've been living for, for centuries in their local communities, not having a lot of foreign visitors, and all of a sudden be coming in tour groups and storm the village and take photos, um, and then we're gone again. <laughs> you mentioned what Fair Voyage does, and you have said that you would like our audience to know about the hidden abuses that many travel workers experience. Can you expand on that and then kind of tell us practically how we would even be aware that this is going on? That's a good question. Um, so I would like to give the example of Mount Kilimanjaro because that's just our initial destination and the reason we started uh, Fair Voyage. So there the problem is the exploitation of porters. And the problem there specifically is that these people are not uh, getting paid enough, not getting fed enough. Um, they may have very poor equipment. 
Um, one thing we can observe as travelers is what kind of shoes they wear and what kind of jackets and clothes during the day, but we don't get to see the tents they sleep in, if their sleeping bags or blankets are warm enough, if the tents um, are keeping them dry when it rains. And the challenge here is that even the directors of these companies um, sitting in, a, in an office somewhere in the city may not even be aware how their own tour guides are treating their porters on the mountains. So even the own company may have difficulties monitoring their own operations. Um, so, and because of that, uh, we have come to be convinced that the only way to really be sure is if there is an independent audit. Now, Kilimanjaro is, is a really good example because there is a really good independent monitoring scheme run by the so-called Kilimanjaro Portis Assistance Project. And what they do is to have an independent, anonymous investigative porter on every climb of their responsible partner companies who comes back to them and anonymously reports how the reality really was. Now, Rwanda is a place that's certainly turned itself around. Is it is it on your radar as, as a place that's doing something um, about ethical travel? Yes, definitely. And I think Rwanda is very advanced overall as an economy and, and in terms of sustainability, not only in travel. Um, they are very advanced. For example, it's one of the few countries globally that have banned plastic bags. Um, and they're doing a lot of things. I had the, for, um, I was lucky, or I was, um, I had the fortune to be invited to participate in a conference that was um, hosted by ITC, which is a joint venture between the UN and the WTO. Um, that a program that they call She Trades, where they try to bring local female tourism entrepreneurs into the global economy. And they had a specific program in Rwanda and Uganda for female tourism entrepreneurs that I was invited to participate in um, one or two years ago. And so actually I went there and I met with a lot of female tourism entrepreneurs. And we one thing we brought up back then, when Fair Voyage was, it wasn't even existent yet, we were still having our old name, Killigate, and we presented our idea for Fair Voyage and our business model and the kind of companies we were looking to work with. And we said that one of our criteria for sourcing companies is that there is an independent responsible travel certification scheme in place. And back then I said, I'm, I'm really sorry because in Rwanda, and the same was true for Uganda, there, is no, there was no such scheme in place yet. And I said, I, I wouldn't really know how to screen for companies and who to work with. And then one thing happened that was truly amazing, truly fascinating, is that all the people in the room, all the women, female tourism entrepreneurs, as well as the local tourism stakeholders uh, from different associations like the Tour Guide Association, the Hotel Association, and so forth, they all came together in these few days and said, yes, we want to introduce um, a responsible travel certification scheme into Rwanda. And so they initiated conversations with the global responsible travel scheme I mentioned earlier, Travel Life, and are now working with Travel Life to start adopting a responsible travel scheme for um, in Rwanda so that they can also get independently audited for their sustainability standards. So what I've experienced is that Rwanda is very much trying to position themselves as a leader of sustainability in, in Africa, 
almost like uh, they almost like Switzerlanders in Europe. I could be a runner um, in Africa, being the Switzerland of Europe. But yes, it's definitely a country on our radar because of their of their strong commitment to sustainability. If you're interested in learning about how you can be a more responsible traveller, visit the Responsible Travel section of the World Nomads website and read our very own Responsible Travellers Manifesto. And if you'd like to give back to the communities you're travelling to, you can also make a micro-donation every time you purchase travel insurance with World Nomads. 100% of your donation goes directly to the project of your choice. In fact, our Costa Rica Turtles film has been awarded an honourable mention at the Travel Video Awards. It was made to document one of our Footprints projects about a community initiative protecting sea turtles and World Nomads Travellers raised $20,000 to go towards that. So thank you. Yeah, awesome. And there'll be a link to the, the video in show notes. Now, in late 2018, Norwegian Gunnar Gafors recently travelled to Estonia. Well, he didn't recently because I just said it was late 2018. <laughs> but anyway, it was for the second time, becoming the first person to visit every country in the world twice. And he came up with the idea after researching his book, Nowhere, about the world's 20 least visited countries. I was actually writing, doing this to write a book about the 20 least visited countries. And in order to do so, I had to go back to those 20, obviously, to do research. And I realized, you know, meeting so many incredible people, seeing so many uh, great places, again, some of them for the first time, others for the second time, I realized that no country in the world deserves to be visited only once. Um, <laughs> and also for, um, in order to be, to be able to, to compare these 20 countries with, with all the other countries properly, I realized that, yeah, now I'm going to do it. And, um, of course this was before I checked my bank balance and I've been struggling financially ever since, but I, I made it. So, uh, <laughs> it's, um, that was celebrated in Estonia, uh, in style with, uh, with 20 friends and, and family members. Hey, do you have a publisher or was, is, are you going to be self-published? Is this something that you just wanted to do yourself that you thought someone might take up? Um, no, I have a publisher here in Norway. We, um, my first book was published in, in English and Norwegian. Uh, still looking for an English uh, one for this particular book. And um, I was, um, being a Norwegian writer, you're entitled to get a scholarship from uh, the Norwegian Author Association, uh, given that you have a good idea that a publisher will actually uh, pick up. So um, that, that made it possible for me to take leave for, uh, for almost a year uh, in order to do this. You know, otherwise, I would not have been able to, to finance it. But um, yeah, being a writer here in, in Norway is uh, it's not too bad, except that we're, far, we're very far from any other country. So you know, it takes a while to, to fly anywhere. Uh, but you have to think about this, that every one of us, regardless where we're from, whether we are from Burundi or we are from Samoa or we are from Paraguay, we all consider ourselves, um, you know, living in the middle of the world, the center of the universe. And um, you have to take that into consideration when you, when you travel, because you are, you are meeting someone, you're visiting someone in their home, and that's where most of their life or all their lives have been. And, uh, you know, you can't assume too much when doing that. I, I love traveling really, you know, to different cultures, to, in, um, uh, outlet, uh, as I put it, outside this Western bubble and then sort of look back into the Western bubble. And I think that's really when you, 
you get something special out of traveling. It's so easy to keep traveling, even in, in African countries, in Southeast Asian countries. Remain in this Western bubble because you can go to really nice hotels and sort of stay there and not even talk to the locals. And in my opinion, then you don't really see or learn or experience much. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. But that kind of travel philosophy comes with a lot of trust, doesn't it, on behalf of the people that are taking you in or showing you the experience or cooking you a meal, and also yourself on being open to walking into somebody's house or going into a village that wasn't on your itinerary. Well, it does indeed. And um, a lot of people, it, it takes a lot that would scare them. They would not feel, um, uh, it, it, they would not feel safe there. And, um, but I think if you, if you think about it, you know, living is lethal. <laughs> it's going to kill you in one way or another. So you can either walk around and wait for, you know, for a roof tile to hit you, you know, in London or the tram to, to, uh, run you over in Berlin. Um, so you might as well just hide in your, in, in your, you know, closet at home and then your house would probably going to burn down. But, you know, you have to sort of uh, open your mind, in my opinion, and just, just go and, and trust other people. Um, everybody, almost everybody, they, they want the best for you. They're, you know, so hospitable. And, um, you know, they invite you to their homes. They cook your dinner. They invite you to their uh, children's weddings and, and so on. So um, I have, with a very few exceptions, only met people that are, are, you know, lovely and caring. Obviously, you have to take into consideration your own safety and there are areas that you would avoid. In fact, I'm interested in, you know, your 198 countries. How many war-torn places have you visited? Well, it's uh, quite a lot of them, but I, I don't go to the front line for obvious reasons and even in a water-thorn country you'll always find somewhere where it is safe or relatively safe or which is not really taking part in, in the war so um, even in those places you, you will find um, uh, very nice and friendly people uh, that are somehow affected by the war uh, but that still doesn't make them not care about you. Do you come across that, you know, maybe something that you've read that in the media where they've said, you know, stay away and once you've kind of got there yourself and um, lifted the lid on it, it's perhaps nothing like the media would like to suggest it is? Yeah, all the time. You know, they always tell me to, to stay, stay away. The Norwegian State Department, they tell me to stay away from, I think, 35, 37 countries. You know, if I'm going to listen to them or if I were going to listen to them, I could never have... Uh, visited everywhere and um it's it's always the same you know you go there and you've read so much you know usually bad stuff it's only about uh, you know terrorism hunger hand grenades and, and awful wars and awful stuff and then you get there and you realize that you know that's that's a very uh, tabloidized uh, part of, of reality and you know people are everywhere you have children everywhere families everywhere and um you know when when they meet you and in particular in places like this, they're, they're really curious and say, why? But why are you here? And, you know, you're invited like an old friend. Uh, it's not nothing like being a tourist in a tourist area where you're more or less seen like a walking bag of cash. And, you know, everybody wants to, you know, lure you into some activity or, or another. Uh, it, it's, it's real. And, you know, you, you see, you get to see the real country. What was your aim? What were you trying to find out in visiting these countries? Well, I wanted to, um, I wanted to, well, first of all, find out which countries are the least visited. And you have the UN, their um, World Tourism Organization. They have a list of every country in the world. 
and uh, most of which um, report in tourism numbers. Uh, but quite a few are missing, and all of those uh, belong to the bottom of the list. They don't have many tourists, or they don't, or have almost no tourists, uh, so they don't spend any money on um, employing anyone to look after the tourist or count the tourist or whatever. Uh, so I wanted to complete this list, uh, the UN list, and um, I tried to do that before using only um, the internet, researching on internet, emailing, phoning, and so on. And I wrote this article back in 2013 on my website, um, and it received millions and millions and millions of hits. And I believe that people are a little bit, if not tired of, but they are at least looking into traveling to more exciting destinations than their neighbors and colleagues. So then they want to find out what are the least visited countries in the world. Um, the 20 least visited countries in the world are sort of divided in two. You have Yemen, you have Somalia, you have, um, um, you have Afghanistan, South Sudan, war-thorn uh, places. And the other group of countries are typically island nations that are really bad at marketing themselves or where almost no planes go. You mentioned Afghanistan, and we've talked about this in the office. There's a lot of uh, Afghanistan that's quite safe. Oh, there is, uh, for sure. Uh, you know, the province of, of Bamiyan is, um, well, it's the safest. It's the only out of 34 provinces in Afghanistan that's actually got a tourist office. They um, organize um, ski and snowboard competitions uh, once every year. It's open uh, to um, anybody. Um, and you just have to get to the top of the slope. And then you have to pass the uh, number of checkpoints. And the first person to, to reach the, the finish line uh, wins. It's, it's quite normal, you know, for, for skiing rules. But they have one specific rule, uh, which would only apply in Afghanistan. That's no weapons allowed in the slope. And it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's, um, it, it's quite sad, really, that they need to have a rule like that. But, you know, weapons are everywhere. Not so much in Bamiyan, I must say. There, um, they have, uh, well, they don't really need military presence because it is, it is uh, a safe province. And it's beautiful there. You know, the lakes, the mountains, um, the ancient statues. And, 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 yeah, it's definitely worth visiting. And it, it's, as it's safe to go. Uh, you will have to fly via Kabul, the capital, but that's probably the safest airport in the world. I think there are nine uh, security checkpoints to get into the airport. So if you fly into Kabul and you just transit to domestic flight to Bamiyan, uh, you'll be totally, uh, totally safe. Phil, his book Nowhere is due out in April 2019 and he has said yeah. when asked, will you travel to the countries for a third time? No. no. I've been there, done that. Yes. Look, I was sceptical about that when you first told me we were going to speak to him. It's possible. That's a, it's a, um, well, okay, it is now and he's documented it, but 198 countries. It's a lot. It's a lot. Okay. Anyway, uh, fellow Norwegian Thor C. Peterson is currently on a quest to visit every country too, but he's doing that without flying and he started in 2013 <laughs> and hopes to finish by the end of 2020. Yeah, that's taking the slow way around. Look, can I just say, be aware that despite what Gunnar said in this podcast, if you travel to a destination that the US State Department, Australia's DFAT, Britain's Foreign Commonwealth Office or any national authority says you should not travel to, you will not be covered by World Nomads Travel Insurance. In fact, we won't even sell you a policy to that destination. And while Gunnar says there are always safe places in dangerous destinations, we as a travel company and as a travel insurer strongly advise that you 
use extreme caution. And make sure you read your policy description to make sure you fully understand what is and is not covered. Now, if you enjoyed our episode on Rwanda, you might like our earlier podcast showcasing South Africa. Our boats are huge now. We carry up to 40 people. Obviously, the bigger the boat, the bigger the cage. And we put eight people in a cage at a time. So we attract the shark to the boat. Has anyone ever pooped themselves? (laughs) 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 You know, I'm telling you, we take a thousand people a month, a thousand people from all walks of life being made. Male, female, big, small, they have cooked themselves. You'll find that episode in show notes and you can get the World Nomads podcast on iTunes or download the Google Podcast app. Ask Alexa and Google to play the World Nomads podcast and Phil to get in touch. Podcast at worldnomads.com. Drop us a line. Now, next week we meet an amazing nomad who was paid to dance his way around the world, but it's not the style you might expect. We're not talking ballet. <laughs> no. And did I really need to say it like that? <laughs> We're not talking ballet. That's next time. Okay, bye. The World Nomads Podcast. Explore your boundaries.